This is the 508 Show, a show about Worcester at September the 21st, 2018. I am Mike Benedetti, the co-host, and this is Brendan Malikin, the co-host, and our guest today, Romina Bariet, on the show today, biologist, soon to be ex-Worcesterite. Yes. <laughs> you leaving us? Yeah. Not, there's no smart people left. You know, I mean, uh, <laughs> so as, as usual, when people leave the city of Worcester, we're going to do an exit interview with Romina on today's show. Uh, we could also talk about local surveillance oversight. Um, I feel like there's lots of news about the Catholic clergy abuse scandals, but I'm not sure. None of it's local. Mm. I don't think we should talk about it too much on the show just because the show will bog down in that. We should certainly talk about what happened this week on uh, this week's episode of Worcester. And uh, Taking yeah. your lead, Mike. The great Worcester Magazine Radio Hour prior to us was talking about uh, vandalized statues in Worcester. Um and I'll tell you what's a prominent vandalized statue in Worcester is the George Frisbee horse statue in front of City Hall. I did not know that. I did not know until fairly a couple months ago that this was a vandalized statue. Yeah, Senator Hoare, famous for his uh, uh, glasses, okay, his his tiny dainty glasses. And so if you look at a if you look at the statue of Senator Hoare, he looks like Raymond Burr up there. He looks like he's ready to come up off that chair. And if you're in support of the uh, you know the the uh, the Spanish American War or whatever he's just gonna sock you right in the face with one of those gigantic fists. But you look at a picture of him on the internet and he's got the little glasses on and you're like, well, G- Senator Hoare is a very bookish man, a very gentle man. Huh. It's a totally different vibe. The glasses, of course, uh, you can I mean you can just imagine a tiny pair of glasses, metal glasses on that statue. Uh, they got ripped off. They used to get ripped off all the time, I guess. And then at some point in ancient history they stopped replacing the really? glasses yeah yeah i did not know that's fascinating yeah, yeah. if anyone out there has an original pair of uh senator horror statues uh glasses bring those down i'd like to actually see those i mean i kind of want to do the reverse vandalization i was just gonna say we coat hangers we should start making our own glasses out of coat hangers and like novelty glasses like yeah. you know little hearts or something the stars sunglasses yeah, but we should do it so they kind of fit, right? Yeah. Like, oh, oh, you're, you're you're saying like so like a Bootsy Collins glasses, but like just like the metal frame, right? So out of like we would make them out of like coat hangers or something, you know, like a, a metal that would tarnish and it might actually fit the. Uh... Oh, is there a, there's a collar already? Oh my, this is. We All lost right. a collar. We lost the collar. Thank God. Okay. <laughs> so in front of City Hall is uh, a statue of Senator. George. No, we get a collar back, Mike. Uh, oh, hi, collar. How are you? Oh no! Hello? 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 Is this Senator Hoare? Yes. This is what. <laughs> Hello? Yes, we can hear you just fine. Can you hear us at all? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Oh yeah! Oh, uh, it so, was the Macho uh, Man, Randy Savage. Hang up on this collar. So, in front of City Can't Hall, hang up on the Macho a, Man. In front of City Hall, there's a statue of a prominent Worcester citizen, George Frisbee Hoare, who was, uh, among other things, a United States senator, and actually had, I, I think, a uh, fairly progressive record on many things, and so was a hero to many people. Longtime abolitionist, opposition to imperialist wars. Um, is this a real caller? Is there any way that you can talk to this? Go ahead. I guess we kind of go ahead. We deserve this. Yeah. Hi. Hi, caller. Hello. You know, you know, I've been doing a little, a little listening. Yeah. And I've been doing a little reading. Yeah. And Lifeford, I gotta say, brother, you're, you're on the, a this hack. is the, 
you know, I, I agree with you 100%. I want to apologize for being such a hack. But the Lightford show ended 15 minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, but that's all right. That's all right. Oh, we we can probably run out to the parking lot and grab him though if you if you really need to talk to him now. Otherwise, I, yeah, maybe give him a call at the office. But you know, there was one you know there was one episode of this show, um, Gabby, that was just it was essentially just white noise because of recording problems, and I feel like we're kind of approaching that on today's show. Um, Romina, hi, welcome to the show. Hey. Hey. So, Romina, you are originally from uh, the country of Chile. Yes. Yeah, but you've lived in Worcester for a while now. My life in Worcester has been divided into two parts. No, I came for okay. five years. I left, and then I came back. And then you came years. back. So, what? like, yeah. So I want to do. Time, but sorry. <laughs> I I, I want to apologize. I should apologize before and after every interview we do on the show. Um, how did you come to work for the company? Or I, I should say, how did you come to move to Worcester? So for uh, for work. So I, I came to UMass to to work in a lab, a neurobiology lab. Mm-hmm. I came to do my master, part of my master, so of my thesis, and yeah, because it was very hard to do it in Chile. So I came here, and then my professor here at UMass offered me a job. So then I said, okay, I'll be there for a year, and then I stay five years. Yeah, for the okay. first time. How did? What was it about? Um, I should say the second question here is why are you leaving the company? And now <laughs> I'm leaving for work again. So work-related uh, yeah. reasons. What, um, what what is Worcester doing right? What is the company doing right? Um, well, Worcester has this, I mean, sense of community. It's like a it's a small city, so it have like a, so you can connect with people easily if you make the right connections, I guess. Yeah. And so, and then, I guess that is what I, I think Guster is doing well, but it's like about the people. The people are doing that well. It's not necessarily the... It's hard to the, tell what, like, for example, the city is doing well. It's not like the <laughs> executives really of... Right. Is, um, is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always curious... Um, the correct answer there, by the way, yes. is we vandalize historical monuments. We That's do, what we're doing, we right? Do, we're doing well, right. No, I mean, look at any any major country, right, That like, or, or even down south, right? It, like, how much it takes for people to actually deface or damage a, a statue, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, you got to get people really, really angry before they start throwing a noose around Lenin's neck and pulling them down. And what, Worcester, we just do it for fun. It's because it's Saturday. Nothing else to do. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't, this I'm, wasn't a game show, is what you're telling me. It's uh, a, where there's no right or wrong answers. I don't know what mm-hmm. we're doing. You know, I, I was. I'm, I'm curious to dig in a little bit more about the experience of getting to understand Worcester better, to learn learning how to live in Worcester. Because um, one question I want to ask is, um, what advice do you have for the next person? What advice do you have for the next person in your position? What advice do you have for somebody who's moving to Worcester for the first time? Like, mm. like in your case, how long did it take before the connectedness of the Worcester community became a part of your life? Was this just like the first day you moved to Worcester, suddenly you felt like you were no, connected to a bunch me, of people? it took me some time, so like a few months. And okay. Also, I ha- when I came here the first time, I have the barrier of the language. I didn't know any word in, in English. I was yeah. just speaking Spanish, so first two months it was like learn and understand what people were talking about. But then I met some la- Latinos friends, so and they, they speak Spanish, so and then they introduced me some people at Stone Soup, for example, and then that's how I start like getting my connections and get involved in different uh, organizations. And I would say, like, if people want to come to Worcester, you really need to be proactive. 
So you can't just, I mean, it's not like, for example, Boston or like big cities that you just walk around and then you have tons of things to do. Here, no, you have like very selective places, very like you, you have to find your like your niche, your your way to go around and yeah. And it's, I mean, if you are not so social anyway, you can try to find maybe groups here and there, but you have to do something. Otherwise, you will think that Gooster is not there a really good place. But for me, I love Gooster, but because of people, groups, community. But, but I have to work on that. But you, but you got to put those couple months in. A what? You, you have to put a couple of months of work in. Yeah, and, and go and research and check. I, mean, I don't know. So that is how I... Is there much of a, uh, a Chilean population, immigrant population in Worcester? No. No, I, there's not? I know two Chileans here. No kidding. Yeah, two or three. No, yeah. Huh. Yeah, so most most people are like in Boston. Well, my boss, the, my first boss, she was uh, Chilean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I met some more. In the That's interesting. Yeah, yeah there but there is many. a population in Boston. Uh, yeah, there are more in Boston. Okay. But yeah, I don't really interact not much. Yeah, no, I was just curious. I, did, yeah. I wasn't sure. I mean, we we talk a lot about there are so many. Worcester has become such an incredible city for, it's always been an incredible city for, for immigrants. Um, yeah. But it, it oftentimes, as silly as it sounds, it, it gets hard to actually keep track of like waves of yeah. populations coming through and whatnot. And I think we, ever in the past, we've kind of tried to nail down some of the smaller groups and whatnot just to try and figure out where people are coming. Like the Mandeans are still like my favorite right, right. story, right? Like how, how, how did that happen in Worcester and whatnot? And we, I don't think we've still really nailed down the... Uh, we're going to get them on the show. No, I think, happen, I, think, I, mean, I, think, I think the name is certainly known of the first Mandan guy to move to Worcester. Okay. Not, not, not off the top of my head, but yeah. 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 Um, what is Worcester doing? Uh, I mean, what is Worcester doing badly that it could be doing a better job of? And by, by Worcester, I mean just, you know, the, the city as a yeah. whole, the city administration, however you want to define it. I think, yeah, many things. Well, first of all, public transportation. <laughs> uh -huh. that, that definitely is something that could be fixed in a better way. I don't drive, so I always bike everywhere. So, and I love biking, but not everybody ha can do that. And not everybody feels like um, like safe driving is a biking, for example. So there, public transportation is something that needs to be fixed. Next, and it's not that difficult, really. It's just like organize oh, better the ma the the routes for the buses and things like that. That is just like trying to do a better job. It's not that difficult, and because you have the resources, it's like they, the city has the resources. So it's just like try to organize things in a more smart way and convenient for the people that they are giving the service. Plus that, and also have better. Uh, bike lines and everything for like the people that bike so the people can feel secure so just we were just watching a documentary about women's that are like organizing in uh, through these theme bikes and because they don't feel safe biking alone or hmm. they don't have good bike lines it was in, in LA but here for example it's a small city so you have big uh, um, wide uh, streets it's pretty easy so there are so many things that can be fixed Easily, without investing so much money, it's just. Trying. Do you feel? Do you feel like? Do you feel like Worcester's? No. Do you feel like Worcester's an easy city to bike in? Yeah, yeah. It's like compared to Santiago, where I used to live, <laughs> this is a paradise. Yeah. Oh, that's you don't actually have really so much. You don't have so much crime that they're not gonna steal your bike right away, which that happened over there in Santiago, and also you don't have like so many trucks and things going next to you without a bike line. So here you have like a lot of space and cars and people are like a lot more 
less aggressive than over there. So I feel pretty pretty safe biking here. So. I you know I love this analysis because I would never say that I feel particularly great about biking in Worcester, but <laughs> I you know again like, I'm just I mean, I'm yeah, just soft. I'm for soft. Almost ten years biking. Yeah, all my time here. Is there any advice that you wish you had gotten before you came to Worcester? Or would it, would it just be the same kind of thing? Like, just hang on a couple months and everything will snap into place? Um, what I would say is, like, feel your, I mean, your instinct, whatever you, I mean, because people gave me advice, when, and when I got here at UMass, they gave me advice, they gave you an orientation, and all that. Mm-hmm. And I didn't follow those advice at all. So because I because they said don't go to Main Street, don't go here. This is so dangerous. And I said no. You know I want to explore things on my own. The first thing I did it was come here and walk around and see my city. Uh-huh. So I feel that yeah, people should. I mean whatever they feel they want to do, they should do it. I think yeah. I mean you met, you mentioned like stone souping an important part of finding people con- to connect with in Worcester, and that's exactly in the part of Maine South that you must yeah. tell you don't go anywhere near yeah. that so place. Yeah, like yeah, and that's really changed my my point of my my view of the city. So mm-hmm. and 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 that's how I met like amazing people. That like that's why it's so hard now leaving. It's like yeah. So if I would have followed those advice, forget it. I would feel like many people at UMass that they really are there just for studies and they think oh Gustav sucks. Like, and they never actually get out into the city at go. all. Yeah. Yeah. This is 508, Worcester's Libertarian Voice. We'll be back in a minute with more. Did you watch this week's episode of Worcester? I uh, caught a little bit of it. I what 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 what, what struck you this week? Um, but what struck me this week? Actually, it was a pretty good week, right? So we had that uh, on Monday. We'll go back to Sunday, start in the street. That was pretty fantastic. Yeah. I feel like that was the big thing. That was really good. Um, yeah, incredible turnout once again. Uh, beautiful day. I feel like that that event, how long has it been going on now? 15 years? Long time. Longer yeah. than 15 yeah. years, maybe? I don't know. No, 15 years sounds about right. But what's crazy to me is uh, I feel as though this is one of those events that is actually benefited by climate change. Uh, because the weather is pretty good. Every year. It seems like it's getting warmer, and it's getting it's staying warmer and more comfortable. I remember the first couple of years, like, it was kind of chilly. It was like, you know, flannel shirt weather and whatnot. It's... Sun was low. You weren't quite sure if it was summer anymore. It might be deep fall. Could go sideways any minute. They've definitely experimented with the the date, the time, the place, all those kinds of things a lot over the last 15 years. Yeah, well, it's stayed pretty much the second week after Labor Day, hasn't it? The one on the one on Park Avenue. Well, because it used to be Main Street. That one. So the Main Street went to Park Avenue. Original. The original start on the street was, was Main it? South. Okay. On the other side of uh, Madison Street, um, in or Main Street, right? So once you get to Madison, it was down by Worcester's old Arts District. Huh. Um, and then it, then it moved to Park. The one right. that one became the Park Ave event. Then there was the other off-season one that was down on Main Street for a couple seasons, uh, North there was, Main Street. There was one in Beaverbrook. There was one in the Canal District. Or, or I should say, there was one in Beaverbrook Park. I don't remember Beaverbrook oh, Park. There I don't remember was. the Canal District. And, uh, yeah, but they've all been different times of the year. Mm-hmm. I mean, and then they're starting the station. Well, and and then well, and that's what I think is that there's also the one they do in the canal district sometimes. And yeah. that, uh, over the years, they just figured out like this is the time to do it. This is the location mm. to do it. This is the number of blocks to take up. Yeah. Like I remember one year, not that many years ago, when they were doing it on Park Avenue, and I think Harry and the Potters, you know, local uh, and internationally known wizard rock band, mm. were playing, and they played to essentially like three people. Yeah. Um. And I just can't imagine anybody playing to three people this year at Start on the Street. Like, they, just things are positioned in the right place, and there's people around that 
more than three people will just sort of wander up to whatever you're doing at the start on the street now. Yeah. I had a really good time. I spent the whole time, as usual, handing out issues of Happiness Pony to people. And uh, I'll tell you a big difference between this year and last year is usually I end up talking to a number of city councilors, a number of people running for office, just standing there. Mm-hmm. Because I don't usually – I don't do a, a lot of walking around. I just sort of stand in one place and let start in the street pass by, and which always works great. But this year I didn't talk to a single politician. Hmm. Or aspiring politician. The highlight of the day for me was finding that That's Entertainment was selling cans of Moxie and Tab for 75 cents. Really? Yeah, and I was really bummed because, at, in hindsight, I should have brought more money. I would have bought the entire ice chest of Tab and Moxie for, for, for 75 cents a piece and sold them for a buck fifty out of the street. <laughs> but thank you for that's, Entertain- that's Entertainment for having such reasonably priced cans of unhealthy sugar water. That is very kind of them. Romina, you were at Start on the Street. Yeah. What is your... As, as a... As a yeah, as somebody who's lived in Worcester for a few years now, what was your experience of being a start on the street? Well, it's one of my favorite events of the yeah of mm-hmm. Worcester, and I think it should be done something like that more often. So yes. at least twice or in a year. Yeah. So because yeah, it's really nice just to see so many people around. You feel so alive, and you run into with so many friends. So it's like a really good um, mom. Uh, I mean moments that you can really yeah see people that you don't see so often as well so it's like it's really cool to oh, like i don't know you hear that tina's yeah. loading leaving worcester specifically because you don't host start on the street enough <laughs> you know I, I i would say i would say in their defense though like good good weather is a problem like i think about the veg fest as being another event where mm-hmm. i do kind of the same thing as start on the street like i'll mm-hmm. do some volunteering and then i'll spend a lot of time standing in one place handing out old newspapers um but you know, it's a lot less fun because it's in this in, building yeah, sure. and it's yeah. it's crowded. We were just talking about that with other friends. That like the veg fest would be great. It could be outside, outside and the weather would be nice. But it's um, yeah, because the crowds at some point just become disturbing and they're not like energizing like they can be in start in the street. But I can also just think. I mean, the veg fest is in April. Like frequently, the Veg Fest is on a cold day, a rainy day, a whatever day. So you kind of got to have it inside. Yeah. So I don't even know how many months of the year you could reliably have a start on the street in Worcester. Well, Boston does so. Mm-hmm. I mean, every week. Yeah, that is gonna, of the year for yeah, what twenty years now. I mean, I, the model is definitely there. All right, I'm just a naysayer. <laughs> don't listen. Don't listen to me. Don't pay attention to me. Um. So you know. Uh, yeah, like I sort of, I would say except for the uh, start on the street, I only sort of half paid attention to this week's episode, like while I was cleaning the house or whatever. Mm. So I'm not really sure what else is going on in Worcester. I know that there was the big uh, grand and glorious celebration of Worcester parade uh, on uh, Monday. Uh, I hope the generation behind us really <laughs> learns to hate us as a generation for allowing city officials to use words like grand, oh. glorious, magical, and magnificent to describe public events. I'll tell you something, man. If 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 we hadn't already named this podcast, I would definitely be happy to call this podcast a grand and glorious podcast of Worcester. Yeah, I think that's but a hilarious name. You have a healthy name. sense of irony. I that's think it's what a I mean. Outside name. of the realm of, a, of of the ice capades, I'm not sure that those words should ever be strung together, unless you're, you're formally supported by Disney. There was, a, there was a bunch of Worcester news and some sort of minor and major cr- probably crime news in Worcester this mm-hmm. week. The one, the only Worcester story that really jumped out at me from this week is that the ACLU is uh, gearing up to uh, ask the city council to have the Worcester police get body cameras and to ask the city council to do some uh, meaningful oversight of uh, how we do surveillance on people in Worcester, specifically how the police do, but 
I guess that's our main source of government surveillance in Worcester. Um, I think this is an interesting story. Um, I'm not really sure what we can say about it today. Like, this is something we've talked about for more than a decade on the show, <laughs> is uh, Worcester's enthusiasm about surveilling its citizens. And it seems like every time there's a surveillance-related issue that comes up in front of the city council, there's not even really a conversation around trade-offs and around, mm-hmm. okay, we have to give up some some privacy for this or that reason. It's just more like, how can we how can we maximize surveillance, Brendan? Yeah. How can we, I mean, like, what can we do? Like, what can we do? Like, there's no like, there's no negatives to this. Like, this is only a positive thing. And the only negative, really, to the way we do it is that we don't do enough of it. <laughs> that every, whatever Worcesterite wants is to, there to be not just one camera on the middle times, but two cameras. That's yeah. what the, uh, the average citizen really wants. And I don't think that that's actually... Uh, it's not supposed tr- to be how it works, Mike. I don't think it's true, but I think it's definitely how the city council has always looked at this issue. I would be... I would only be half surprised to find that the city council's response to the ACLU's uh, inquest here uh, was to uh, say, you know what, this whole police body cam thing, that doesn't make any sense. We're going to have every citizen and, re- citizen and resident in the city of Worcester wear body cams, and the police will be fine without them that way. Have you uh, have you have you looked at all at what the ASOU is, is proposing here? Yeah, no, I mean it's pretty straightforward. I mean the big one is is the data col- from what I've seen is the data collection when it comes to uh, the LPR uh, set of uh, style cameras that are on uh, a fair number of police vehicles here in Worcester, but they're pretty much statewide at this point. And what's really cool about them from a technology perspective, and I think why they were so attractive to municipalities. And again, this is stuff we talked about years ago. I think it's something that. Uh, Reason Magazine, Boing Boing, like all the places that were kind of uh, trying to be a little bit ahead of the curve when it comes to surveillance. We're talking about this decade ago. Um, be, they're attractive to municipalities and government because the storage isn't in the hands of the municipality and the government. There are third parties that come in, provide the cameras, uh, outfit the, the cruisers and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the storage is handled by those services as well. So it's just another aspect of uh, big data, data brokering and, and what have you. I'm really curious to see what the city's response to this is, because I, I, I would guess outside of uh, some folks in the administration on both the police department side and uh, in City Hall, you probably have almost nobody that understands how the technology works. Chris Robarsh, friend of this show and head of the local ACLU, says the public doesn't know enough about how the Worcester police use the army of cameras it monitors as real-time crime center. And I think that I feel like in talking to Chris, I had the impression that like that, the city council has never really had um, a conversation around mm-hmm. like how we, what we do with these cameras, what we do with this stuff. That there's never sort of been this report to the council saying, "Here's our surveillance situation." That, yeah. Again, it's just handled, you know, bit by bit, year by year, builds up, builds up, builds up. But that there's never this moment where the council says, "Let's look at the lay of the land and think about where we want to go." Yeah. Well, I mean, in the, you know, the easy way to uh, really, I think, for uh, citizens to ensure that their best interests are, are taken at heart when it comes to that kind of um, passive surveillance is very similar to what we saw 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago, when we started rolling out um, automated toll systems in Massachusetts, right? Like, the one thing the legislature wanted to make sure of is that there was not going to be any data collection as to how people went through uh, the tolls from a a law enforcement perspective, right? Because simple math would say, I, I, I don't hope the guy in the Caltech hat can uh, back me up on this one, but like 
If you had somebody enter uh, a Mass Pike exit uh, in Worcester and then get off in Newton, uh, all you'd have to do is a little bit of averaging, and you could probably write somebody a $200 ticket for the amount of speeding that they did in that time frame, right? Yes. Wicked easy to do. But you could also see patterns, right? And it was my understanding that there was a significant fear from the legislature itself uh, that it would open up the possibility down the line that someone could actually look at patterns in uh, work and travel, right? So for the 40-ish percent of Americans that are having affairs uh, right now, according to any meaningful study, the Worcester Police Department knows everything about your affairs, right? Because every time you drive somewhere in the city, no matter where you go, a camera is picking up your license plate, it's picking up your car, and those patterns build up over time. All of you, you know, every 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 pattern you have to go to work, you know, maybe you stop at a bar on your way home from work and you don't tell your, your significant other about that, the Worcester Police Department knows about it, even if they don't think they know about it, right? Because that data has been collected they, they, for years. That they know that they know these are the these yeah. are the these are the five neighborhoods that where you where you go all the time, or and, only every other Tuesday at exactly seven o'clock, right? Yes. And for anyone that like hears that and thinks, well, you're just being weird and paranoid, take out your smartphone. Pull up Google Maps and look at the history that Google uh, oh, has Google so going much. back, what, 10, 15, 20 years now on all of your Forever. driving patterns. Forever. And if you haven't been an active participant in securing uh, the way like, a company like Google uses your data, just imagine what the public sector has access to at this point, because they're the ones who buy all that data. I have a paper here, Brendan, called Why Are Conversations Limited to About Four People? A Theoretical Exploration of the Conversation Size Constant or Constraint. I, I think this is interesting just in terms of like how many guests we should ever have on the show. Um, I'm not Only sure. Th- four. I'm not sure that this is a legit paper. Like they, they. <laughs> Why are we reading it? Uh, I mean, it's an accepted manuscript, so oh. that's something. Um, this is uh, by uh, Jamie Arona Krems and Jason Wilkes. It is being published in the journal Evolution and Human Behavior. Um, it is genuinely difficult to sustain a casual conversation that includes more than four speakers. Add a fifth speaker, and the conversation often fissions into smaller groups. Hmm. Termed the dinner party problem, this four-person conversation size limit is believed caused by evolved cognitive constraints on human mentalizing capacities. In this view, people can mentally manage three other minds at any one time, leading to four-person conversations, but whereas existing work has posited and empirically tested alternative accounts of what drives the conversation size restraint constraint, to our knowledge, no work has explored the question of why this capacity is specifically four. In this theoretical paper, we review research demonstrating this cognitive constraint in sociality review the relevant working memory literature which has explored the why for question at some length and we begin to pose possible answers to our specific social why for question so uh they just basically run some math and they suggest that our social brains have evolved to model interpersonal dynamics when considering other people as opposed to exclusively objects or digits as the limited chunks that our mind must navigate. A four-person conversation may be special because it is the largest conversation size with more possible dyads in which the self is involved, inclusive dyads, than possible dyads in which the self is not involved, exclusive dyads. Um, actually, I think it might be exactly the same number of inclusive and exclusive dyads at a conversation size of four. Does that make any sense to either of you, what I just said? Uh, yeah, no, I think that, that explains uh, completely. Uh, if we go back <laughs> to our original caller, uh, why a tag team wrestling match is always more interesting uh, than a battle royale. Right, and it's because you just can't follow. You can't follow everything. You just can't follow the moves of four people. It's I mean, like halfway over before you realize that Steve Austin just cleared the entire ring and it's done. 
I mean, it's, uh, I, I can read the numbers out to you too, and you can tell me if you find this, tell me if you find this to be plausible. I don't, Ramin, I don't know if this is as a as a as somebody who who is involved in the world of academic papers. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you feel okay talking crap about somebody's paper on the radio. So if you don't, feel free to not. But I definitely do, as somebody who's not in this game. So if you're talking with one other person, there's obviously only one subgroup that you can make there. If you have three people, there are four different subgroups. Uh, two of them are conversations of you and another person, and one of them is a conversation uh, of the other two people. And then at four, there are 11 subgroups, possible subgroups. Um, three of those subgroups are you talking with one of the other three people, and three of those subgroups are different combinations of the other people talking to, to each other. Uh, and so that's the argument here, which is that like it, when you get up to five, suddenly this starts to go way out of control and you've got way more uh, groups of people, um, pairs of people that you would have to keep track of that don't involve you than that do involve you so that I guess maybe you wouldn't care about those as much as the ones that involve you and so maybe your brain would just say we're interested in developing other capabilities or evolutionarily there wouldn't be as much of a benefit and your brain getting good at five person subgroups. Sounds like this is the kind of guy who turns around and says that... uh, yeah, that, that, that you wonder, like, how they function at parties. Yeah, well, my first question would be what type of group that they, 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 in which culture they did the study, because that depends a lot of your culture as do you th- well. Because, do you for example, like, yes. Latinos, we can speak, like, like, <laughs> like everybody at the same time, 10 people, and it's not a big deal, and you can include everyone, and, but, like, sometimes, like, I have noticed in, I mean, in U.S. that just, like, Three people, it's not possible, like, just to talk, another one is not there. I so don't it happen, like, depends, that's why it's, like, depending a lot in the, and, or, like, it's like, a, yeah, I don't know. I like, mean, I don't have the, uh, I mean, I don't so have So that would be uh, my first critics yes, yes. on this, the saying, <laughs> yes. like, you can't really have, like, a, like, a theory without, like, having different group. I mean, like, a representative group of different I mean, cultures, that would be a big thing, I would say. His entire research was based on the idea that he was the youngest child in a family of, of three kids and two parents, <laughs> and he's just really angry that nobody ever paid any attention so, yeah. to him. I mean, this is, this is the... I, I usually print out all of these papers. This one I had to sort of pirate the... the I, I mean, the part that even explains what they're doing, I had to pirate, so I didn't print it all out. Uh, and I wish that I had because then I could have. I feel like we could have flipped through it and tried to understand what, like what. Like, can what we talk about a research, some real interesting yeah. research? Go for it. You're a biologist. Mm-hmm. What kind of biology? Right. Neurobiology. Neurobiology. Did you happen to read the paper that started or, or the study that started circulating yesterday about the researchers that gave MDMA to octopuses? <laughs> it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Like right. legit peer-reviewed research, but like now like this more palatable uh, public uh, sort of mm-hmm. commentary is coming out. You give octopuses uh, MDMA, Molly. What, what happened? Mm-hmm. They act just like humans. Yeah, like they're just, they're they start it. avoiding all of like the weird sort of fight or flight stuff that comes into play between small octopuses and big like male mm-hmm. octopuses. They freak out a little bit, but then they start going through like really weird changes of like color flashing to show out the show that they're they're freaking out. So they will go <laughs> completely pale for a little while mm-hmm. yeah. as they start to roll, as the kids would say. Um, but then they just start hang, hanging out together and getting all touchy feely with their tentacles and whatnot. Oh. That's interesting. I mean, yeah. Yeah. would you? Well, there are many behaviors in insects or like different type of animals that are exactly like humans. So. Yeah, but no, but so, totally. But when you, it was just interesting. This was all based on them yeah. being high on MDMA, and uh, yeah, I, mm-hmm. I don't think anyone. 
I would really like to meet the people who sat down one day and said, you know what we need to do is find a federal grant that's going to allow us to dose <laughs> octopuses with a big batch of MDMA. You know, I'll just, Those people are going to be a good time, Mike. I just have to point out as somebody wearing a Caltech hat that I should, that I should recognize the pioneering bizarro work of my uh, fellow Caltech alum, John Lilly, mm-hmm. who back in the 60s, of course, gave acid to dolphins. Uh, 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 basically discovering nothing as far as I'm aware. <laughs> but it is something that he did, among many other weirdo researches. I don't uh, think that's very back weird at all. That's, you probably wouldn't have the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy if not for John Lilly giving... Uh, Acid to dolphins? Yeah. I don't really know what... I don't Thanks even, for all the fish, man. Yeah, I, I remember reading something about this, a chapter about this. I don't remember what what happened to them. Uh, you know, there's, there's nine structures on Worcester's 2018 Most Endangered List, according to Preservation Worcester. And, um, Does this that is, include the one we just started tearing down in this week's episode uh, of Worcester? Let me see. Yeah, this is what we did. You know, actually, there was a great – I should have printed it out. There was an amazing quotation in the Telegram article about the uh, tearing down of uh, uh, Notre Dame Church um, because they were talking about, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could preserve all the stained glass windows? Yeah. Obviously. And they're not going to be able to preserve them all. And um, I believe a representative of the diocese said, well, you know, there's, n- there's just – a lot of stained glass windows <laughs> all in on the market right now. It's not like it used to be. Yeah. Uh, which is definitely a uh, a sign of, as we were saying, maybe post-Catholic Worcester or post <laughs> post-Catholic uh, stained glass market window market. You think you'd put them on at least try and put them on eBay or something, though, right? Well, there's going to be a little bit of money to be made there. I mean, I don't know. I don't. I mean, that's. The, I. I probably there's a lot of costs involved in terms of like surviving, uh, saving them and whatever. Like, I'm sure if they could make even five bucks, you know, they would sell it to us for five bucks. But it's a question of like how many person hours does it take to get that get that down, put yeah. that in a box, get that to your house. Probably a lot. A lot of people. I'm sure it costs hundreds of bucks to get that sucker to your house. Um, here's what they are. So this is uh, this is from Cyrus Moulton's article in, in uh, the Worcester Telegram and Gazette because the Preservation Worcester website does not have a good listing of these. They think I bet you they think they do, but they you don't. had one job, Preservation Worcester. They don't. They need to make. They need to have a PDF or a website that just has all this information on it in a nice way that I can read it all rather than having to click all around the world. One of them is the Joel Bjorkland Lodging House at 56 Laurel Street. Okay. Do you know what this is? I don't. This is the first year the structure has made the list. Built in 1900, this three-story wood frame structure in the Second Empire style has always been a three-family home since the time of one of its first tenants, coincidentally named Joel Bjorkland, a salesman. <laughs> However, uh, it's, it, is, it has undergone a lot of neglect. One of them is Ghost Signs, Citywide. We were just talking about, you know, um, you were telling me the other day about that, about that, the man's face on the side of the Sahara restaurant. Oh, yeah. Which I always assumed was like Granddaddy Sahara, who yeah. overfounded that restaurant, that it was this, you know, this is old Lebanese guy uh, <laughs> in his portrait. I mean, and, the you know. The first member of the family to come over from the Sahara. Yeah. <laughs> and, oh, I mean, I mean, well, honestly, I thought that this was Alan Balzerian. Right. Well, so, so you say, right. So you, so you tell me, but he was not, he did not start a restaurant on that side. No, he started a men's clothing company and then later moved his men's clothing company to Boston and then they shut down the Worcester one. But that was, even when I was a kid, I mean, up to my teenage years, early twenties, that was like, that was Worcester's legit, like really nice men's clothing store. Like Shaq's was the sort of like, you know, upper blue, uh, the, the working class, like men's clothing store. Alan Balzerian had to get buzzed to get in. Like that's, that's where the, you know, the guy that you're going to be waiting on you. Tape measure is already around the neck sort of thing, like, and he was dressed the way you hoped to be dressed when you left. You wanted a, bestow, a bespoke sp- suit. That's uh, 
He looks, want. he looks really slick in that painting. Yeah, that's well, a, that's one I'd love to see refurbed. That sign. Yep. Well, you know, I think about that. Like, uh, there are, I guess they say, ghost signs are faded, hand painted advertising signs on buildings, which harken mm. back to the 1920s and 30s. So we have plenty of these involving soap or shoes or whatever in Worcester. Oils them. I think that that one's got to be the one in the best condition, though, because, that, like I said, like that's a, that's a ghost sign that I've assumed was actually owned <laughs> by the business yeah. because it was in good shape. Yeah. I mean, not great shape, but mm-hmm. not terrible shape. Yeah. That's actually something I've wondered in recent years as it's begun to fade and chip a little bit is like, is there some reason that like the, the Sahara owners are no longer so happy with Granddaddy Sahara that they're letting his portrait kind of fade. deteriorate? Yeah. But uh, uh, one of them is the Bice, oh man, the Jewish bathhouse at 4 Huntley Street, Bice Havelo Mikva. Mm-hmm. Do you know what this is? I do not. We're just going to read these. Lothrop's Opera House, a.k.a. the Olympia Theater. You know what that is. Of course. Um, it's on the WRA's downtown urban revitalization plan as a potential building to be demolished. Uh, it is in a district of buildings listed on the National Register of Historic Places and is one of the few blocks of downtown Worcester where the original buildings are all intact and connected. And it's been closed for about a little over 10 years now. Mm. Sounds about right. Uh, and you've been in you've been in that building, right? Yeah, absolutely, a couple times. What's it like in there? Uh, old theater. Okay. That's just. <laughs> but it, now it's been. If you've been in recently, they put a little bit of work into it uh, to actually start rehabbing uh, the space potentially. Um, I, I don't know if the owners of the building have continued with this line of interest, but there was at one point in time uh, at least some hope about a art house theater coming in to take it over. Uh, short runs, uh, art house film type stuff. But right now that's like super vacant. Right now it is all just vacant. Last week at the city council meeting, I don't know if you saw this, that there was an item about the Mount Carmel deed restriction. Uh, I'll read my summary of this. There's a letter from the state about the deed restriction on the Mount Carmel property. The property is indeed restricted to be used for, quote, religious, educational, or recreational purposes. However, this doesn't prevent the diocese from demolishing the church and selling the property. It would restrict what the new owner could do with the property and would require legislation on the state level to remove the restriction. Now, we have been talking about whether or not Catholicism in Worcester has the cultural relevance of an Applebee's (laughs) or not, and whether calling Worcester a post-Catholic city really means anything other than there's not a lot of Catholics. Like, are are there second and third order effects of this? I would argue that this is one of them. Yeah. That, uh, like, is the state legislature... Gonna, uh, you know, what, like, how likely would they be to um, pass a piece of legislation that's gonna overcome the deed restriction to let the diocese, you know, get a good amount of money for this property, versus are they gonna be, uh, pro- you know, decide that that's a problem and that they don't want to go along with that? This is where that comparison to, uh, you know, the the cultural relevancy of an Applebee's actually comes in perfectly, right? Because mm-hmm. That deed restriction, it's not identical to, but it's very similar to the Dover Amendment, which is what uh, you know uh, creates the entity, the the allowance for higher ed to be not-for-profit entities and whatnot, right? All they have to do is provide uh, an educational um, component to anything that they're doing, and you know everything in that property remains tax-free. Right, right. So, but you could actually build an Applebee's on a college campus in Worcester or in Massachusetts, and that Applebee's is now tax-free. So, like, yeah, I think we're getting into a really weird place where you would almost have an easier argument uh, to say, like, look, well, maybe we just build an Applebee's down here. And if it has a small playground uh, in the back, then that will have that will fit all the needs of this deed restriction and we can just knock the building down. And I don't think you're going to find many people other than the folks who are already uh, circling the building uh, who are really going to be upset about that. 
I just want to say to to get back to the point I was talking about previously. Um, I mean, I think that there was. It seems like a generation ago, the the legislature would be totally excited to, uh, again, just say, yeah, sure, Bishop McManus, whatever you want, and now less so. Um, you know, we were. I think this was an article. That Does anyone even bother calling the bishop to see what his, his take on anything is now? The, the bishop mean, is a very quiet man. He may not even tell you what he wants. Yeah, no, I don't think anyone is reaching out on that front. You and I, you and I were looking at an article where there was a lawyer who um, represented a lot of abuse victims talking, and he was talking about how the uh, outgoing, presumably outgoing governor of California, Jerry Brown, despite being a very progressive, is also somebody who, as a young man, was in the seminary and was considering becoming a priest. And that maybe as a result of this, Jerry Brown has been um, against um, increasing the statute of limitations uh, in California on uh, sex crimes committed on minors. Mm -hmm. And this increasing the statute of limitations is something that advocates for victims of sex clergy abuse have pretty universally been in favor of increasing the statute of limitations. So there's lots of people who are presumably responsible for this who are still around, but because the statute of limitations is whatever number of years – and that number of years has passed, these people can't be prosecuted. Um, this lawyer was looking at it and saying that the presumably incoming governor of California, uh, San Francisco Governor Gavin Newsom, uh, presumably has no uh, similar kinds of uh, nostalgic feelings towards the Catholic Church as Governor Brown, and so is presumably yeah. much more enthusiastic about the idea of uh, changing the statute of limitations. And that's another place where I think being, whether you are uh, a post-Catholic city or a post-Catholic state or not, makes a difference that, you know, I, I, I don't remember if we talked about this on the, this show or not, like the idea that there's sort of, that there's sort of two levels of uh, cover up of these things, that there's a level of cover up where the bishop, um, you know, uh, allows these things to go on and uh, does what he needs to do to make sure that you are not going to have to pay the price in the world of criminal justice for the crimes you've committed. And then there, then there's the level, which is the police looking the other way, the local judiciary looking the other right. way, the press not really following up on stories the way that the press otherwise would because your place is so overwhelmingly Catholic or the powers that be have such an affinity for the Catholic Church that they all just kind of want to soft pedal that as much as possible. Honestly, I I assume that if I was the district attorney of Worcester or the whatever of Worcester, the police chief of Worcester, I would presumably be in that same category. I kind of think that considering I'm sitting here on the radio talking trash about you know the, the abuse scandal week after week, maybe I wouldn't be, but probably I would be. So I don't want to pretend that this is people being corrupt. This is just people's, people have biases. This is just one of the biases that people would have in a Catholic city and not have in a post-Catholic city. Sure, I guess so. It's still weird, though. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I mean, people have biases towards whatever. I mean, people, you know, at some point you just have to decide, like, this is what we're going to spend our, t- our our time researching and this is what we're going to spend yeah, our no, time I, not I, researching. I would just say that there's probably a strong distinction to be made between a bias that is going to allow a city to say, you know, we're going to allow parking on the sides of streets that we don't normally allow parking on on Sunday because there's lots of parishioners coming in here and turning your back on child rape. I don't know. I would that just say there's difference. probably... You know, I know, I know, nuance is something that uh, is beyond uh, the, the the norm uh, these days. But yeah, I, I think it's safe to say that we should probably be looking for folks that wouldn't just turn their back on that one. So as I was saying, Our Lady of Mount Carmel Church, um, <laughs> well, we have uh, the Hope Cemetery Barn at 119 Webster Street. We have Salisbury House on Harvard Street, Deacon David Richards House at 5 Richards Street, Bramble Hill on Salisbury Street. Those are the places. There's a, there's a there's a bunch of others that are kind of the 
kind of the second string. And one of those is just uh, in the process of getting sold, I believe, too, right? Which the one, one in Salisbury Street. Um, one of one of the pro- properties that is on Salisbury Street. It was uh, it was in the Telegram this weekend, I believe. That they oh, were, good, good. What a large property that was. Yeah. Good. The rest. Oh yeah, uh, uh, Bramble Hill. Yeah. At 757 Salisbury Street. Yeah. Romina, do you care? Do you care at all about this kind of historical preservation stuff? Yeah, I mean, I wish we could uh, really keep them all, but yeah, it's really. I mean, we talk about that like before, like it is kind of expensive. I mean, it's like how it can be affordable to like right. for the city to do that, but there could be maybe different maybe ideas that like how they do it in Europe sometimes that they come they make for example a church as a community center or a pub or like a coffee shop things like yeah, that that yeah. can you can maybe keep the infrastructure and and make it like I don't know um, with profit repurpose you know, it somehow repurpose like it that. somehow there is going to be today a movie so later uh-huh. if we have time for that this, Go ahead. Is, this yeah. is the time. The last two oh. minutes are yours. Talk about so, whatever no, the you want. Huracan is a um, film they're going to show today in Beacon Street in this um, um, church. Uh, let me see. Um, it's about it's, uh, a nación en resistencia. It's uh, about Puerto Rico, and so it's a summary of how Puerto Rico has been the colony of U.S. and the struggles that have been this have these people the I mean Puerto Ricans even after the and after the hurricane how and and the filmmakers are going to be the, are going to be there so it's the Christian community church in uh, 108 beacon Street at 7 p.m 7 p.m so I hope people can go it's organized by the National Boricua Human Rights Network New England so yeah so that event and the other event uh, uh, next week next Saturday is in Stone Soup it's a fundraising for Stone Soup so the Tertulia Julia de Burgos is organizing that it's kind of an open mind for people that are like with uh, go with their can go with poetry and music and um, to to do these fundraisers. It's like a, it's like a bi- it's kind of a bilingual open mic. It's yeah, m- mainly um, in Spanish. Yeah. But yeah, well, orientative yeah. and like um, I don't know, resistance. You're not going to feel weird or out of place if you're only an English speaker. Oh but, yeah, no, you're because not everything is yeah, we we always um, translate anything. Yes. Everything. So it's accessible. It's accessible. Yeah. You have been there. Well, Romina, thanks for being on the show. I'm sorry Thank that it you takes so you moving away from Worcester to finally get you on the 508 show, but yeah. I'm glad you were here. Mike, we should also make sure, because we're re- really tight on time, that yeah. uh, everyone knows that this Sunday at 3 p.m. in the parking lot of uh, Austin Liquor that you will be fighting a boxing, a kangaroo for a charity. Yeah. Uh, and where is all that money going the charity to? Be to be, a charity to be named, I okay. think. So, uh, yeah, hey, thanks. Thanks for listening to 508, guys. We'll talk okay. to you next week. Bye-bye.